Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. Let's start with uh, tonight's uh, address to Congress. You know, you know it's going to be unlike anything that we have heard before from any president because <laughs> this president is just unlike any president we've ever seen, the uh, uh, least qualified and least articulate of all of them. Uh, I think it's going to be fun to watch because if you think about it, uh, first of all, this is probably the most difficult audience Trump has ever addressed, right? Yeah. Because these people, right wing or, or liberal or conservative, right wing or left wing or whatever, uh, I mean, they all, they're pretty smart, right, for the most part. I mean, they didn't get there because they're dumb, like Donald Trump did. Uh, they they know the issues, which he doesn't. Um, they know some of the complications, which he doesn't. Um and uh, I mean, just just to start on the subject of health care yesterday, speaking to the governors, uh, Donald Trump did say, gee, who would have believed it? Who would have believed that something like health care, Obamacare is actually pretty complicated? Now, I have to tell you, it's an unbelievably complex subject. Nobody knew that health care could be so complicated. Nobody knew. Nobody knew that health care could be so complicated. Um, I got to tell you, when uh, Anderson Cooper <laughs> asked Bernie Sanders about that last night, Bernie Sanders just laughed out loud. I'm wondering when you heard the president today saying, quote, nobody knew that health care could be so complicated. Uh, I mean, I, I thought nobody knew health care would be anything but complicated. But apparently the president said nobody knew that it would be so complicated. Were you surprised? Well, by that? some of us who were sitting on the health education committee who went to meeting after meeting after meeting, who heard from dozens of people who spent stayed up night after night trying to figure out this thing. Yeah, we got a clue. Uh, and, we got a clue. And so maybe maybe if Donald Trump had actually uh, listened um, to some of the things that President Obama said about the Affordable Care Act, about the difficulty of just saying, oh, we're going to repeal this because it doesn't make any sense, maybe Donald Trump back then might have learned something. You know, healthcare is complicated because our healthcare system is so complex. I suffer no illusions that this will be an easy process. Once again, it will be hard. Healthcare is complicated stuff. Yeah, he said it over and over again. It is complicated. So again, uh, tonight, I think we're going to see Donald Trump uh, in a very kind of awkward situation. Think about it. Half of the people sitting in front of him don't like him. All the Democrats and some of the Republicans, and the other half don't trust him, meaning the Republicans. They don't trust him because they don't know where the hell he stands on anything. I mean, he talks a good game sometimes, but on certain certain issues, on Social Security, he says he's not going to cut it, period, for people who are getting benefits now or about to get benefits or way in the future. Medicare, Medicaid, he says he doesn't want to cut it. 
exact opposite of what Paul Ryan says. On the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, he says, yeah, he wants to repeal it, but he wants to replace it with universal coverage for everybody, which Republicans have never said. So there, there are a ton of issues that Republicans know that he's really not with them. Uh, so I, it's going to be it's going to be an awkward dance. I think what we're going to hear, and we'll talk more with uh, John Allen from Sidewire and Roll Call a little bit later in the program, uh, with all of our guests this morning. I think we're going to hear basic. I think we're going to hear Donald Trump uh, give kind of a repeat of what he did at his news conference last week and what he did at CPAC last Friday. He's going to brag about all the things he said he's quote accomplished, rather than sign pieces of paper that don't do anything uh, over the last month. And I think you're going to hear him give his old promises. We're going to build a wall. We're going to rebuild the military, the depleted military, which is BS. Uh, we're going to repeal Obamacare. Yeah, he always says that. And, of course, he will brag about uh, how big his electoral vote victory oh, yeah. was. And he will, of course, so find a way to attack the media. You know that's going to come. Yeah. Right. Here's, by the way, uh, I uh, could have written that speech. A, a memo outlining his speech to Congress. Uh, a couple of uh, of notes. Um, he says that he will lay out an optimistic vision for the country, uh, and he just a couple of bullet points: tax and regulatory reform to get relief to hardworking Americans and American businesses, which is probably translates to more uh, easing of regulations for his friends, making the workplace better for working parents. Saving American families from the disaster of Obamacare, making sure every child in America has access to a good education, uh, a great rebuilding of the American military, and fulfilling our commitments to veterans and making sure they have access to the care they need. And those are the uh, bullet points. So those, the are the, those are the bullet points, right? Uh, it's going to be. Awkward. It's also going to be awkward to see him read a uh, teleprompter speech. He just. It's just not what is something he's good at. We know, I, I, you know. Look, he's good at campaign rallies. Sure, we know that. Sure. And by the way, you know, George W. Bush was really good at campaign rallies. Uh, President Obama is the one who could read a teleprompter, you know, like playing a violin. I mean, like, <laughs> right. uh, it's like Perlman playing a violin. But, <laughs> but this is not Trump's strength, so it's going to be. It's going to be. Trump has a good twenty-minute window. Where he could contain himself and stay on message and with a, stay on the teleprompter. But with a friendly, supportive, enthusiastic crowd yeah. that he plays off. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's not going to have that tonight. Yeah, it's I wonder be, where that's going to go, no, man. it's going to be a tough audience. Uh, one other thing that I, I, that I have to tell you that really offends me is they put out the list of the people who are going to be in the president's box. Now, this started with, we remember, President Reagan uh, when uh, Air Florida— plane left National Airport and a half a mile later crashed into the 14th Street Bridge. Uh, and l if I get it right, Lenny Slutnik? Oh, man. That's close. That's close. That's close. You can check it out. All right. Uh, jumped into the Potomac, advice and jumped into the Potomac to save some people on that plane. And President Reagan put him up in the box. He was in the presidential box. For Skutnik. 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 Okay. Yeah, right. Lenny Skutnik. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and and he got the, uh, the the applause for everybody who was there. Ever since then, every every president now has to have people they point to point up to in the box, and of course to reinforce his anti-immigration stance, 
to further make the case for having to round up everybody who is here in this country illegally and send them back to Mexico. Donald Trump uh, has uh, two different families up there tonight who are whose children were killed by illegal people who are here illegal illegal uh, immigrants. Um, so it, he's just doing that to make this case as if this goes back to when he started his campaign. Right, Donald Trump is he's driven to try to convince all of us that anybody who is here illegally, anybody who is undocumented, is a rapist, a murderer, a killer, a serious, uh, guilty of serious crimes, and therefore they all should be deported. Uh, he could have had some, maybe some of the family from victims of Sandy Hook. No, killed by American. Or at uh, maybe from Charleston, Mother Emanuel Church. No. They had to go out, and the White House, I'm sure, went out and searched and searched and searched for victims who had been killed in a crime by illegal immigrants. And you know what? When you have maybe 12 million people here who are here uh, undocumented, yeah, a couple of them are going to commit serious crimes. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't mean they're all evil, which is what Donald Trump's message is. It's disgusting to see him do that tonight. By the U- way, it, using his speech, again, to make a political point, which is an un- unfounded political point. Yeah, no, it's it's going to be pretty grotesque what he's going to do up there. And tonight. you know he'll call just them out. Get and ready say, for it. Yeah, yeah. oh, this, it's going to be just, a whole big thing. This just proves that what I said. They're all rapists and criminals and killers. Yeah. Murderers. Uh, it's interesting, by the way, and I know you're not one for the, the whole response to the State of the Union. It's interesting that the Democrats have tapped former Kentucky Governor yeah, yeah. Steve Bashir to give the uh, the response. Who put together the best uh, state exchange for uh, Obamacare? They made uh, a big of, point of, of, <laughs> about saying that's why he was speaking. Yeah. Right, of any state in the country. The White House, lots going on. Uh, they um, are very defensive about the idea that there would have been any contacts between the Trump operation and uh, and Russia, trying to uh, shoot down that story. And meanwhile, trying to build up excitement for the president's speech tonight. Christina Wilkie keeps her up all night long covering the uh, Trump White House. Uh, hello, Christina. Nice Good to see you. Certainly is going to talk about... Um, all the uh, Russian connections between the Trump uh, operation. Bill, that's fake news. Can you, can you possibly? <laughs> oh, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. I know we're probably not allowed to say it, but no, that is the. the Boy, are they uh, trying to bury that story? I mean, as of it's yesterday, it's not going to go away. No. Well, we hope it's not. Um, and I, but as of yesterday, Sean Spicer in the briefing in the daily briefing took on a new line, which was basically. What is there left to investigate? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there. Yeah, in fact, uh, we have that, uh, Jamie, where it's a Spicer yesterday yeah. uh, at, at the briefing. Um, and uh, this is a total non-story for him. Here he is. I think that Russia's involvement and in activity has been investigated up and down. So the question becomes at some point, if there's nothing to further investigate, what are you asking people to investigate? Well, actually... Um, the FBI is in the middle of its investigation. Right. right. The House Intelligence Committee, which was, I'm sorry, the Senate Intelligence Committee, was briefed by Comey, Director Comey, right. last week. So they're in the middle of whatever investigation they're doing. Right. Devin Nunez yesterday in the House Intelligence Committee 
It was interesting because he gave a news conference where he said he hasn't seen any evidence. At the same news conference, he said, we haven't started our investigation yet. Right. Right. I mean, so even Adam Schiff, uh, and Jamie, we have Adam Schiff, pointed out that, no, he couldn't produce any evidence right now because they haven't even looked at whatever evidence they have. They haven't had one hearing heard from what witness. Here's the ranking Democrat, Adam Schiff. We have, I think, uh, reached no conclusion, uh, nor could we in terms of issues of collusion because we haven't called in a single witness or reviewed a single document on that issue as of yet. Right. So so this is not going to go away, right? No. No matter how much they want it to go away. Now, I wouldn't put my eggs, personally, I wouldn't put them in the basket of the House Intelligence Committee. I think we're going to see a lot more activity from the Senate. I think think senators in general feel they have a greater obligation um, in in these incredibly sensitive national security matters. Um, You're going to see a little bit, perhaps a little bit less partisanship. Richard Burr obviously has already has said back since January that there would be, he's the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, that there would be a um, a, a full investigation. And we understand Mark Warner, who's the ranking member, has now, you know, has has complimented Burr on what, what they're they're taking forward. Um, they, you know, there are certainly this past week, as we learned about these phone calls but that were set up by the White House and with reporters so that the, the you know, but yeah. so top figures could knock down the New York Times story. Burr was one of those. And that should give us all pause because it's, that suggests, I was just, yeah. I, I was just going to make that point that I don't think you can trust either Burr or Rich or, or Nunez because right, I mean, uh, Sean Spicer called them both and called Mike Pompeo. We talked about this yeah. in the last half hour from the CIA um, to shoot down these stories in the New York Times. Now, if both the House and the Senate chairs are are even considering the possibility, right, which Nunez kind of tried to do yesterday, is discredit these stories. Right. How can they be trusted to run uh, uh, an honest investigation? I, I believe they can't. So you're back to what John McCain and Lindsey Graham have said. And surprise, surprise, Daryl Issa. Right. Jesus says yesterday we need a special Bipartisan, bicameral, independent committee appointed. Right. Like from Watergate. Yeah, a prosecutor. Right. To and to look into this. Who is not under the White House's thumb. Exactly. And, and this received yesterday a very chilly, that same circular logic that <clears throat> Sean Spicer gave when he said, if there's nothing to investigate, then how can you investigate the nothing that you investigated? <laughs> yeah. Uh, he did exactly the same thing with the yeah. question of a special prosecutor. And and I don't envy him up there you now having to answer. I mean, this is not a question you want if you're a White House briefing guy. Uh, yeah, but that's his job, right? This so is like, his I'm job, not right. too yeah, yeah. hurt for no, no. him. And um, and he and his answer was, well, a special prosecutor to prosecute what? So you know, so, and and it was and and someone said specifically to him, this is went right before he said, well, it's been all been investigated up and down. But yeah, it's these ties, the communication, the potential for collusion. The Russian meddling in the election. We've had intelligence, you know, intel- the intelligence agencies investigate, but we haven't, uh, you know, Congress hasn't taken this on. We haven't, um, Mike and Flynn has yet to testify. The intelligence agencies concluded that the Russian government was trying to turn this election for Donald Trump. And the president rejected and, and denied and repudiated their findings. You know, so I, I don't feel as though we have, I mean, as the American people, I don't think we have any sense of closure. And that's going to, you know, the 2018 campaign cycle has already started. Yeah. 
And this is, it is really hard if you're a candidate to um, to reject the idea of an investigation. Is, it, is there any doubt that what that Donald Trump's attacks on the media, the fake news, the enemy of the people, is all an attempt to divert attention away from the Russian connection? I, I think it's certainly, no, there's not, there's not doubt. It is a diversion. Um, I think because he has that, other... Then, th- then we start talking about right. that. But he has other things to divert attention true, from. Right, true, right, right, right. A, yeah. you know, I would, no, it's not uh, exclusively it, that. You, you, to me, with, with the Russia stuff, right, like there are sort of two schools of thought, and we've talked about this a little bit, right? There are those Democrats that think that Hillary Clinton lost exclusively because of the Russian involvement, which I think is BS. And then there's another group that says that the Russian involvement had absolutely nothing to do with the election and there's nothing there, which I also think is BS. I think it's probably somewhere in the middle. Me too. But like when you have the administration trying to kill stories like this, you know what that means is that there's more coming. Like they know that this is not the end of the Russia story. If they're trying to kill this story and they're trying to discredit the media or they're trying to discredit uh, the story, they know that there's more coming. So like... Where does this end? It doesn't end for a long time, and and you're I right. Think, I don't think it. Does, I don't think it does. And for a I, long think, time, I think I think right now right. I don't feel that I know at least. Um, when you say they know there's more coming, we're not really sure in this White House who they is. <coughs> so what we learned right. with you know with the the fact that um, that that Bannon and Priebus decided to keep this from Mike Pence, you know keep keep the Flynn. Uh, you know, debacle from yeah. Mike Pence for for ten days. Jesus. Um, I yeah. mean, means that there are you know, when we say they know there's more coming, it, it's Bannon probably knows. I would say Priebus uh, probably has the two of them would be the people who seem most in charge um, and and who would be responsible for putting out this kind of a fire. Um, but that's not, you know, there's, I mean, Mike Pompeo might not know, uh, you know, the vice president might not know. Um, so there's, yeah, there's, there's a, a chasm, I think, of information and communication even within the White House. John Allen here, who is a columnist for Roll Call and a Community and Content Director, Head Poobah Whatever. at Sidewire. <laughs> hey, John, how's it going? It's good. So uh, this is going to be a big test for President Trump tonight, huh? Yeah, I mean, I'm waiting for him to say the State of the Union is sad. Weak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. that's, that's what he ran on. Right. Now well, we... I'll tell you, the picture that he painted of it... Uh, at his news conference, right, and, and and what was the last speech? Not not the CPAC speech. The inauguration. The inauguration, yeah, was pretty down. American carnage. Car- right, yeah. I don't understand what country this guy's living in. He is what planet, perhaps? I mean, he is uh, a multi-billionaire, I mean, we assume, uh, mm-hmm. without actually seeing his tax returns, uh, who has done so well in life that he doesn't understand that healthcare is complicated, that our healthcare system is complicated, because instead of the Cadillac plan from Obamacare, he's been dealing with the Lamborghini plan his entire life. <laughs> right. um, and he looks around and he says, God, America sucks for an entire year mm-hmm. uh, or a year and a half. And, you know, now he's in charge of it. And we hear him talking about it, you know, as he takes over as continuing to suck. Mm-hmm. Which the the back end of which will be him campaigning on America's not as bad as I said it was <laughs> because I made it better. Yeah. Uh, but I think this speech tonight is really important for him because 
there has been no prioritization to his legislative agenda. And if Congress isn't told what to do, it won't do anything. So if he's got Obamacare repeal and replace, and he's got tax reform, and he's got infrastructure spending, and he's got a budget that essentially guts the federal government uh, outside of the military. Outside of the military, right. Uh, so that he can give uh, big contracts to, to companies uh, through the Defense Department. If he wants to do all those things, he's got to take uh, a whack at prioritizing them and tell Congress in what order to do them uh, and what really matters to him. And what's funny to me is he was so much better about that on the campaign trail than Hillary Clinton was. Mm-hmm. The the sort of bullet point list of, I want to do this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. And he's he's really not making any choices right now. It's as if uh, Stephen Miller and Stephen Bannon, his aides, landed in some sort of policy orgy where they're running around like they can't figure out which which thing to ride, so to speak, uh, at which time. And they, they, you know, they're trying to do it all at once. And we see this budget that comes out yesterday, $54 billion more for the Defense Department, cutting EPA by, what, 25%, as much as 25%. The State Department, some people are saying, maybe cut by 30%. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear non-domestic, non-defense domestic overall will be a 15% cut. They're not even operating in real terms. It's hard to take them seriously. So Congress will not take them seriously when they land with a budget like that. That's why this speech is important. I think if Trump wants to get anything done, he's got to start getting them moving in a direction. It's probably, wouldn't you agree that it's his most difficult audience that he's ever faced? Yes, he's facing people who actually know what Thank you. He's what they are talking about. Thank you. And by the way. Yeah, that's a point that I made earlier, too, which is even the Republicans you disagree with. They know what they're talking about, right? right? Each of them has some sense of, and and I would say this about Democrats too. I mean, each of these members of Congress has some sense of public policy, yeah. And what, or they wouldn't be there, or yeah. they wouldn't be there. I, I mean, I think there are. I think in the last decade or so, we've gotten some real losers. I totally agree. Uh, yeah, but, more so than but we used overall, to have. Overall, that audience but, is going to be pretty sophisticated in terms of. Right, and and they know what it means. It's unlike his. Normal campaign rally crowd. Right? They know what it will mean to their constituents if thirty percent of any department is cut. Uh, you know, and obviously there are some that it's easier to do that with. People think that the federal government spends trillions of dollars on foreign aid every year, and that's obviously not true. It's a very small percentage of the budget. Uh, it's hard to get. I mean, it's hard to get anybody interested in that stuff. But I say if you can save spending on a lot of weapons because you've got uh, let's say microfinance experts that speak Arabic and go into North Africa and teach people how to start small businesses uh, and help economic development in other countries. That's a lot cheaper than it is uh, to come in with with 15 new planes. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Sean Spicer told us at our briefing yesterday that the president is going to be true to his promise of not touching 
Social Security. Nancy Altman joins us, who is founding co-director of Social Security Works. Hi, Nancy. Nice to see you. Thank you so much for having me. So how soon before Social Security runs out of money, goes bust, and everybody's left high and dry? <laughs> oh, no. Social Security is the most conservatively financed program in the government. It currently has a $2.8 trillion surplus and is predicted projected to have a $31 billion surplus just in 2017 alone. When you go out 30 or 40 years, it's about 90%, 85% funded. So we need to bring in some more revenue. But that has been a campaign to undermine confidence. Social Security is, is quite secure and quite well Do you believe funded. Donald Trump when he says he's not going to touch it? Unfortunately, I have my doubts. Because if you look at his history before running for president, he talked about it as a Ponzi scheme. And he said um, around 2011 that... You got to be careful, though, because if you run on cutting Social Security, you're going to lose. And he knows the politics of it, but I'm not sure that he uh, believes in the program. So I know it's going to be there for an old geezer like me, but how about a young buck like John Allen here? I mean, thank you. Thank you for that description. <laughs> Social Security is current funded, which means that the monies going into Social Security are mostly paid out in benefits. So as long as people are working and paying, their Social Security contributions or premiums, there will be money. That's why Social Security has such a small shortfall, even out 20, 30, 40 years. As long as people are working, we can afford Social Security. So, John, We've, relax. Yeah, I'm so relaxed about retirement. <laughs> <laughs> um. As you should be. That's the point of Social Security, is a peace of mind security that's been lost. But the idea is... When you're young, you should be thinking about your career, your family, all kinds of things, not retirement. So here's something I, I don't understand that maybe you can help with. Um, at a certain point during the year, uh, a lot of people hit, not everybody, but a lot of people hit a cap where they stop paying Social Security taxes. Uh, and it seems to me that, you know, I, I have trouble understanding why it is that somebody who makes Couple hundred thousand dollars a year stops paying Social Security. What is tax. it? One one hundred twenty-seven thousand. One hundred twenty-seven thousand. They stop paying Social Security tax in October or November. Sometimes December. on day one, if, yeah. you, if you're rich enough, January first. Sometimes 1st. really, yeah. If you, if you're Bill Gates, you probably stop paying by your coffee break on January one. Right. Um, the most people pay fifty-two weeks a year. They have the money withdrawn from their paycheck every paycheck because they earn below, 94% of Americans learn, earn below that $127,000. So as a consequence, most people don't even know that cap is there. But for example, people on capital, the, the uh, Congress who pays into Social Security, they stop paying in the spring. Millionaires stop paying on February 1. Some people stop paying in October, as you say. The easiest way to bring more revenue into Social Security is to scrap the cap. Um, that's what like Senator that. Sanders, the cap. Other, uh, many uh, Democrats, or at least lift that. the cap, right? Well, there are all kinds of things you can do, but there's no reason that pe that everyone doesn't pay in 52 weeks a year. This is one of the few programs that's like really essentially regressive. In the it's it's regressive in the revenue, uh, and mm -hmm. if you scrap the cap, all you do is make it proportionate. You don't even make it progressive. I mean, I would argue, given all the income inequality that we should be um, dedicating the estate tax to Social Security or find our, uh, 
financial speculations tax, finding a new source of progressive revenue. But at the very least, as you say, it's a regressive structure in its financing now, and that should be changed. What are the, you hear about Social Security that it has done more than any other program to lift people out of poverty in this country? What are the facts? That- That's right. It Just this year alone, it's lifting about 20 million people out of poverty, including a million children. People don't realize that Social Security is the nation's largest children's program because of the survivor, the life insurance, and the disability insurance it provides. It was not it's not intended to be an anti-poverty program. The idea is that it prevents poverty rather than alleviates poverty. But in fact, but the fact it, is, does, right, with, it does raise 20 million people out of poverty every year. Without Social Security, these are seniors who would be living in poverty. Well, let me tell you an, an even right? more staggering figure. If Social Security were to disappear tomorrow about 50%, almost one out of two seniors would have incomes below the poverty line. It doesn't... It, really? That is right, that that the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities has done, mm. done the work, and which is about what it was prior to the Depression. To, can I ask to what extent is that a function of seniors no longer working? I mean, some of those that are or in the 50% not, that not are not saving, in poverty. Not well, having... But as I say, those, for those that are not in poverty, some of them have uh, have saved over time, and they may not have a high income, but they have savings or you know, things that they can liquidate. Social Security, here's another uh, staggering statistic. Social Security provides half or more of the, in- the income to two-thirds of seniors. So... The idea is we have traditional pensions that have been disappearing. You really can't save adequately for retirement. The idea that at 65 or 70 or whenever you, you retire, no matter how long you work, if you have the, the um, good fortune to live to 105, you're going to outlive your savings. You cannot outlive Social Security. It's an annuity that follows you um, through, your, through your retirement years. So certainly as you age, you lose... You know, you spend down your other assets, um, and you and you haven't had this income coming in, and that's what Social Security provides. That's why virtually every other country in the world has the same system we have. Their benefits are higher, and we at Social Security Works thinks it's time to expand benefits, but um, it provides a basic source of economic security that you can't get any other way. Democratic Party's got a new leader, and now we've got to get about the business of electing uh, good Democrats uh, at every level, at the State House, in the Congress, and in the United States Senate. A brand new candidate from California's 34th Congressional District, that's a district that Javier Becerra vacated when he became the new Attorney General of California. Wendy Carrillo joins us here in studio. Hey, Wendy, nice Hi. to see you. Good morning. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, when is the special election? It's a special election, right? It's a right? special election. It's just around the corner on April 4th. People oh will start God. receiving their ballots this week. Really? Yes. This week, right. Yeah. There are like 4,700 candidates in that race. 4,781. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <Right. laughs> 
It's but I'm number field. two in the polls, and that feels good. That's great. Yes, good for you. you. Thank yeah. you. This is a district that raised me, and I'm excited to represent it. How'd you uh, jump in? So fa- I mean, so Governor Brown called this election. It, mm-hmm. it was not that long ago. Like that yesterday, it feels yesterday like. Yesterday, that Javier. What's up? First week of December. First week of December, I was the first woman to jump in, the third candidate to jump in, and it's been exciting, an exciting time since. So uh, tell us a little bit, 34, it's East L.A.? or It's such a, a huge part of the city of Los Angeles, and it, it starts at the top in Eagle Rock, Highland Park, El Sereno, Mount Washington, downtown, Pico Union, Koreatown, and Boyle Heights and City Terrace, where I'm from. All uh, I know it all well from being at Angelino <laughs> for nine years. Yeah, yes. that's a, that's well done. The entire tour of the district. It you're, does you're just a, a brief a brief tour. Yes, so I'm ready to go. I've been. You ready. have the L.A. River, but you don't have any uh, uh, Santa Monica Bay. You don't have the coastline there at all. Not but, not quite. No, it's it's a little bit of a drives away. No. Uh, what's your background? Were you in the state legislature? Um, no, I've never run for office. I've been a journalist and a labor activist for most of my professional career. That's what I'm talking about. That's <laughs> what we right. need. Right. Yeah. Something like, different. Feels like media can get into politics. I might run someday. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, All now right. more than now more than ever, no, we seriously. need journalists in in Congress, especially at a time in which journalists are being kicked out of press briefings and are not able to ask the tough questions. This is what I've been doing my professional career and I've been holding elected officials accountable and now it's on a different side uh, but I think now more than ever we need bold new voices that are unapologetic and unafraid and represent a new uh, democracy in our country. So second place is the right place to be right? Yes we want to make the runoff. I mean you make the runoff and the first place person didn't get the majority. Like oftentimes the second place finisher in a runoff election ends up winning. Well the, the conversation once I make the runoff will change completely in terms of what it would look like for the district and in terms of being somebody that grew up in the district with my own very unique story of being a formerly undocumented child that fled war and violence in El Salvador and the fact that this district has the largest Salvadorian American community in the country and having been raised on the east side with a Mexican and Salvadorian family. It's all of the identities currently so being So tell us about, about that. Your parents brought you here? Yes. My, my mother brought me to this country when during the Civil War in El Salvador. My biological father died in that war. I was raised with two loving parents. My, my, my father, who I know as my father, is of Mexican descent. And I grew up on the east side. And so when we talk about unaccompanied minors coming from Central America right now, and we're talking about Syrian refugees, there is a connection on foreign policy and the impact that we have as a country around the world. So now we're seeing it, and I am the embodiment of that. My journey is an American journey. It's a, it's a story about perseverance and struggle and sacrifice. And now I want to be there to represent this nation who was so good to me. And you were born in El Salvador, I was right? born in El Salvador. How long have you been an American citizen? Um, or are you an American citizen? Of course, I. I was the first one. I was the first one in my family to be able to vote. I became a naturalized citizen at thirteen. When I between five and thirteen, I was undocumented, like many young people that fled the war during that time. Became a resident and then became a citizen. Had to wait the X amount of years before I was able to do that. Uh, so I, you know, I take that very seriously in the family. My four younger sisters were born here, but I was the first one to be able to cast a vote before they turned eighteen. My mother very recently became a citizen herself, and we're working on my dad becoming one. And so this is this is what America looks like. This is a change in demographics of this country. And so now I get to do it in a whole new way. What are you seeing uh, in your district in terms of, if you are seeing anything in terms of uh, the Department of Homeland Security and ICE 
uh, stepping up enforcement efforts. Yeah, so my my father dropped me off at the airport before coming to D.C., and we were talking about Whittier Boulevard, which is a very largely Latino immigrant neighborhood, lots of shops, and mm-hmm. the shops were empty because people are afraid to come out. One, they're, they're afraid that if they might be detained and removed from this country, they're not going to have any money, so they're not... They're not um, spending, so business is losing, uh, and they're not out. And so they're very afraid. This district is 64% Latino, 49% foreign-born, 33% of which cannot vote, a large population of which are DACA recipients, and young people are afraid that they are on a registry and could potentially be targeted. These are all very real things that our district is currently facing. And so, you know, what that looks like and how we bring security into our communities. And when I talk to voters at the door and they cry and they tell me I'm afraid to send my child to school, it is heartbreaking. And it is not the country that we should have. But it's the current moment right now. The Parting Shot with Bill Press. This is The Bill Press Show. Well, you know, I can't believe I'm saying this, but in only five weeks, in some ways, Donald Trump has made America great again. Think about it. Thanks to the Donald, millions of Americans are exercising more, holding signs and marching every day. Millions of Americans now know who their state and federal representatives are without having to Google them. Town hall meetings are entertaining again. Pharmaceutical companies are making a lot more money selling antidepressants. Tens of millions of Americans now how now now know how to spell words like emoluments, fascist, misogynist, and narcissist. Protesters donated $24 million to the ACLU in less than 48 hours. People are reading classic literature again. Sales of um, 1984 rocketed up 10,000%. Saturday Night Live is better than ever. Melissa freaking McCarthy, Alec freaking Baldwin. Millions of Americans have discovered the 25th Amendment, and now more than ever... Everybody believes that anybody can become president of the United States. Seriously, anybody. So, yes, maybe not how he intended it, but in some ways, Donald Trump has made America great again. This is The Bill Press Show.